Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, proud partner in personalized medicine developing tailored treatments for cancer patients. Learn more at AstraZeneca-US.com. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with your host, Dr. Anise Chagpar. Yale Cancer Answers features the latest information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, it's a conversation about end-of-life and palliative care with Dr. Elizabeth Horn Persich. Dr. Persich is the director of the Adult Palliative Care Program and an assistant professor at the Yale School of Medicine, where Dr. Chagpar is a professor of surgical oncology. So, Elizabeth, you know, I think there are at least some, you know, misperceptions about what exactly is palliative care. Um Can you tell us a little bit about that? I mean, it goes all the way back to, you know, previous presidential elections when people were talking about death panels. Like, is that really what we're talking about? So there's a lot of misperceptions out there about what palliative care is and what we can provide. Um, So palliative care is a medical subspecialty that's really focused on the comprehensive care of patients with serious illness and the support of their caregivers and family members. We're involved from the time of diagnosis all the way through an illness, whether that's a terminal illness or whether they're working towards curative therapy. So we're there to help support the families um, as well as the patients. Oftentimes we help with symptom management and support, but we're also there to help with communication support, um, support for the medical teams caring for the patients as well. So it sounds like this is not like hospice, like, you know, you're going to die, let me help you to go blissfully into the good night, night, right? Like, so tell us about the difference, because I think that people really get confused between palliative care, which, you know, you said starts at the time of diagnosis and can even be used for people who are undergoing therapy for curative intent, versus hospice. So what's hospice? Hospice care is care that's really focused on end of life where patient's prognosis is six months or less. Um, And that's really focused on the comfort-based care of the patient, the support of the patient, rather than any curative or disease-directed therapies. Most hospice care is provided in the home setting um, with families serving as primary caretakers, although some hospice care is delivered in a hospice setting or in a a nursing facility, or even inpatient if symptoms require intensive management. So hospice care is a form of palliative care in that we're really focusing on the support of patients and families facing serious illness, but hospice care is really directed towards the end-of-life symptom support rather than curative or disease-directed therapy. So, So a really important thing, I think, for people to understand that difference, because so often, you know, people will have pain or they'll have... Um, you know, nausea or they'll have, you know, some sort of issue or an emotional issue. And somebody will say, well, you know, maybe you ought to talk to some of the palliative care team people. And people will go, oh, my God, what do you mean? Am I dying? Yes. Um, Which is is not the same. Um, You also specialize in end of life. And, you know, for a lot of patients, especially patients with cancer, that's something that they don't really want to think about, but they are forced to kind of think about. Tell us about what that's like. So when you say I think that patients don't want to think about it, I I think that is in many cases true, but oftentimes patients do think a lot about it and may not have the tools or may not have 
the comfort level to speak to certain providers or family members about that. So in a lot of cases, I feel that we are having these conversations that families and patients often want to have and may have been thinking of having for a long time, but just didn't have the outlet or the support to have these tough conversations. Yeah. And I think that a lot of people are just scared. Um, They don't know what to expect. And that makes the conversation very difficult. Um, So how do you... How do you start having that conversation? So each and every patient in each and every circumstance is very different. Um, obviously, there is a lot of fear and apprehension about care at the end of life and about confronting end of life. Um, but that isn't always the case for every patient. Um, there are many patients that I speak to that have very clear wishes about what they want at the end of life and in particular what they don't want at the end of life. Um, there are a lot of fears that people are willing to talk about, for instance, fear of uncontrolled symptoms, of pain, fears of abandonment, feeling that their doctors or other members of their care team may not continue to care for them if they, quote, you know, give up or stop focusing on disease-directed therapy. And really, that's not at all the case. There's always uh, support for patients, and there's always things that we can do to help them cope with their illness, cope with their symptoms, and support them along this really natural and universal process. So one of the things that I think people um, may have fears about is what happens after death? I mean, whether they come from a spiritual background or a religious background or not, um, they're, 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 I think that may play into that apprehension. Um, talk about how you broach that topic. I mean, are there people on the palliative care or the end-of-life team who um, can discuss those issues, and how exactly does that conversation go? Right. That's a, that's a big question, <laughs> maybe one of the biggest questions that we have as human beings, right? Um, we And I'm glad that you brought this question up because I can talk a bit about the wonderful team with which we work um, at Yale New Haven Hospital and the Palliative Care Service. Uh, we have dedicated physicians, nurse practitioners, nurses, and also social workers and chaplains, um, both inpatient and outpatient, as well as a dedicated art therapist and a dedicated psychologist who only focus on patients that are at the cancer center, not end of life necessarily, but anywhere throughout their cancer journey, supporting them in this regard. So many patients do have a lot of what we call existential distress or spiritual concerns. Um, That's something that all palliative care providers are adept at identifying and discussing with their patients. But in particular, we rely upon our spiritual care providers and our social workers and chaplains for those particular needs that patients may present with. Um, And that doesn't mean that patients necessarily have a strong religious belief or uh, they may not identify it as spiritual or existential distress. That's sort of our jargon that we use to talk about these things. But you know, fears about what happens next, finding meaning in their life and their current experiences, thinking about legacy, you know, what's important to them now, what's important for them to leave behind and pass forward. And sometimes that presents in anxiety or sometimes that presents in, you know, thinking more about the spiritual or deeper aspects of really the human experience. So, 
that's a big question, <laughs> and we try to address that on an individual level. I've had many patients that really don't identify with any particular religion or identify themselves as either, you know, generally spiritual or atheists or, uh, you know, relapsed Catholic, as many people say. Um, but there are many different ways to kind of talk about these things and provide comfort and support and just a shared sense of humanity facing these these major questions yeah. and concerns, yeah. And when you talk about, you know, the questions about leaving a legacy, I think the other the other thing that happens at the end of life that um, that people may be thinking about is relationships, mm-hmm. um, either relationships that require mending, things that have happened that, you know, have not been resolved, um, and how to how to deal with those relationships, um, particularly as you face the end of life. Mm -hmm. Because we all have relationships where there may have been some strain, there may have been, you know, people have fights or bickering or whatever, and then you're facing this incredible event, inevitable incredible event. And you may want to find closure uh, in that. And not know how. And is that part of what your team can help people with? Like, how do you do that? Yes, absolutely. So how do you do that? And again, I think when we talk about palliative care, we talk about all these kind of larger issues and larger questions. And when I think about how it's implemented and how it unfolds day to day, it's such an individual experience. So I think one thing that we're particularly adept at is identifying these Uh, these relationships, these legacy concerns that people may have, um, sometimes they're linked to physical symptoms, to be honest. Um, I've had patients that, you know, their blood pressure goes up, their heart rate's high, their headache's worse, their nausea's worse. And day after day, you kind of notice this is always a certain time of day when certain people are visiting. You know, Mm -hmm. What's going on with this here? Um, Other people, they have been hospitalized many, many times and they want to make amends with a loved one that maybe they have been, you know, separated from for whatever reason or re- want to reconnect with children or spouses or um, make a lifelong commitment. Honestly, we've had several marriages actually in just the past year, both of patients and of family members and just, you know, solidifying that link or recognizing these missing pieces in people's lives or these important components of closure of legacy for them and helping to facilitate that. A big part of that uh, comes into play with children, with guardianship, with financial planning. And we actually have a program through the palliative care um, uh, palliative care service um, where we have a partnership with the Yale Law School, and there's a medical legal partnership that's facilitated with the palliative care service and social work, um, where we can help provide some legal assistance to patients that may need it, for instance, to help provide assistance with guardianship or paperwork to help, you know, give people peace of mind that maybe they've been unable to obtain through the usual measures because of illness, because of repeated hospitalizations, Um, helping patients, you know, get married (laughs) in the hospital or helping facilitate ceremonies so that they can really make a concrete demonstration of, of their family ties. And that brings so much peace and closure and that does more than any medication that I could certainly provide. So we rely heavily on our palliative team for that and in particular our social work and chaplain 
team. Yeah, you members. certainly don't think of of palliative care and palliative care services as being, you know, Joyful. the wedding coordinators, <laughs> right? Like, um, but it 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 is it is cool that um, that you really do take kind of a holistic view of. What are the things that are important in this person's life that they want to celebrate, that they want to amend, that they want to get done Mm -hmm. um, before, you know, the capstone of their life? Right. And Um, and, and even thinking back upon, you know, different capstones that they've had in the past, what are they proud of? What have they spent their lives cultivating and practicing and what's important to them? And so I think— as physicians, we tend to think about illness and end of life from a very medical viewpoint, as we should. Um, but really, from a patient perspective and from an experience, human experience, there's really so much more. And I think palliative care, we help obviously with the symptom support, with the communication support. We have the time to really sit down and delve into these deeper issues and help resolve and support patients in really times of crisis and great sadness, but also. There's such an opportunity for joy, for meaning, and I think that's what keeps all of us doing what we do. Yeah. You know, I was at a, a conference several years ago now, and um, it was it was kind of like a career fair for, for students, and the, uh, they were thinking about different specialties. And, and one of them came up to me and asked me, you know, how could anybody do palliative care and end of life? Because, mm-hmm. I mean, it's just such a depressing field. Well, <laughs> and, and I came back and I asked our, our one of our, our palliative care physicians about that. And she said, well, you know, the two uh, greatest moments are life and death. And those those are 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 inevitable. And um, and there's something important about being there for patients at those two times. Absolutely. I mean, it's truly an honor to be with patients that are going through difficult times wherever they are along their journey of serious illness um, and certainly at end of life. And the way I see it, it's not just about the patient, but also about the family and caregiver and and what happens after the patient's passing, their bereavement, how they look back upon the patient's illness. Did they feel supported? Did they feel cared for? Did the patient feel that things went in a way that that they wanted things to go, right? Were their wishes respected? Were their goals recognized and and appreciated and valued? So I know for many people it does uh, seem like a very – it is a sad topic and there is a lot of loss and grief, but uh, our our team finds a lot of of meaning and a lot of, you know, joy and we do this because it's a passion. So I don't think any of us, you know – woke up, uh, you know, the last day of college and said, I'm going to go be a palliative care provider. But we find our way into this field for a reason. Um, And we're generally a pretty happy bunch. (laughs) So we're going to talk more about uh, how uh, you care not only for the patient, but also for their family uh, right after we take a short break for a medical minute. Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, dedicated to providing innovative treatment options for people living with cancer. Learn more at AstraZeneca-US.com. This is a medical minute about colorectal cancer. When detected early, colorectal cancer is easily treated and highly curable. And as a result, it's recommended that men and women over the age of 50 have regular colonoscopies to screen for the disease. 
Tumor gene analysis has helped improve management of colorectal cancer by identifying the patients most likely to benefit from chemotherapy and newer targeted agents, resulting in more patient-specific treatments. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to Connecticut Public Radio. Welcome back. We are discussing end-of-life and palliative care, and right before the break, Elizabeth was telling us that this really is not necessarily a morbid field, that that part of her job is to really care for and support and at times even bring joy to patients at, you know, a really important time in their life. And it's not just the patient, right, Elizabeth? It's also, you know, caring for the family and the caregivers. Um, so talk a little bit about that. So being a caregiver, I think, is one of the hardest jobs that anyone can have. Um, Being a caregiver from my past experience, when I think about myself going through medical school and residency and training, I tend to think about the caregiver as the support person that brings the patient to the hospital, that picks up their medications, that helps coordinate things. Um, And what I've learned through personal experience and what I see every day is that this is really an all-encompassing job that you can't really understand until you've been there. Um, So we try, we recognize that the caregivers are really the most important people in in the lives of our patients and vice versa, and try our best to recognize their value, incorporate them into medical decision-making, into conversations, making sure we communicate with them and, and bring in communication from the medical teams as well just recognizing that essential role that all caregivers play and and really the extreme exhaustion and and fatigue and distress that this job carries with it. Yeah. I mean, I can imagine, you know, watching a loved one um, face the end of life and watching them go through everything, you know, treatments, um, symptoms, ultimately facing their demise, it it is a harrowing experience for them while they're trying to be supportive of the person going through it. And, And I can't imagine what that's like. So tell me about how you not only try to support the patient and help them with their symptoms and help them to find peace at the end of life, and at the same time, Try to help the caregiver who themselves is going through their own grief and sadness uh, watching the demise or potential demise of a loved one. Mm-hmm. So I think number one is is recognizing their role, recognizing their presence, incorporating caregivers into the communication, um, whether that be inpatient or outpatient, regardless of, you know, whatever serious illness their loved one is facing. Um, we really view the palliative care patient experience is that of a patient and caregiver dyad or dryad, depending on sometimes it's a family of 20 that's in the patient's room. And so we recognize them, you know, really not just behind the patient, but really integrated into the patient's care. So we involve them in in our spiritual care and our social work. We involve them in our symptom assessment. We involve them in every single communication um, and recognize their their expertise. They know the patient better than anyone else, and they they always will, right? No matter how much time we've been with them in the ICU setting or how many labs we've reviewed or how far back into their 
oncologic record we've gone, they, they know the patient best. Uh, our social workers also follow um, patients' families outpatient. They have caregiver support groups. They have bereavement support groups as well. Um, it's a hard job. There's a lot of resources out there that social work may also connect folks with, um, both at a state, local, and, and national level. Um, I help fill out a lot of uh, family medical leave paperwork, even though any physician can do that. But it, it is time intensive, um, and it's something that many people don't think about until they're kind of asked, to be honest. Yeah, mm-hmm. because I can imagine that, you know, while the caregiver is the caregiver, the caregiver is also the patient who is you know, a different patient, but, you know, somebody who's also going through their own form of depression and their own form of internal pain and their own issues, mm-hmm. um, which only add to the, the plate that they've already got that's already overflowing mm-hmm. with all of the issues that they have to deal with for their loved one. Right. So recognizing that this is a, a group effort. <laughs> not any. This caregiving is not uh, a single person's job, and there's a team of people to help support every patient and every caregiver. And and if it's if if there is a situation that isn't safe for the patient or isn't safe for the caregiver, I've I've had so many caregivers, you know, break an arm, break a leg, come in, they haven't slept in days, and we need to recognize that, you know. Everyone needs to be cared for here. This is not a one-person job. This is a marathon, not a race. Um, and there's a team of people really here to support you. And in the hospital, we have a lot of resources, of course, but we also help coordinate outpatient support as well, whether that's home health aides, visiting nurses, home palliative care, home hospice support, uh, medical equipment, hospital beds, commodes, things like that that will make caregivers' lives easier when they leave the hospital. What about your Uh, personal health, right? Because as a member of a palliative care team, I can imagine how emotionally invested you are in your patients and how exhausting, just from an emotional burnout perspective, that can be helping all of these patients, individual patients and their families with their medical issues, their symptom issues, their emotional issues, that must be exhausting. It can be exhausting. I'll not, I will not lie. I think all of us in medicine and many other fields, we, we work a lot. We work a lot of hours and, and do a lot of good work. Um, I think it's important to take breaks, to step away every now and then. But I think for me, one of the key things that helps prevent burnout and helps with provider and caregiver well-being is I, I find so much meaning in my work. And a lot of joy in the work that I do. So seeing a patient that was in just insufferable pain, unable to walk, having trouble eating and drinking, and two days later he's up and walking the halls, kind of passing me by as I do my notes. And those sorts of things just bring me so much joy. And and we do really great work every day. So that makes the job easier. Um, in a lot of ways, and I think many people on my team feel the same way. So it's intense, <laughs> and it's important to, to to take time away, and whether that's, you know, time with family, time doing things that I enjoy outside of the hospital, spending time with people that I enjoy that are not my patients. <laughs> I do enjoy time with my patients and my colleagues, of course, but um, but I do find a lot of meaning in the work I do every day. So on one hand, it is very challenging work, and it's important to 
recognize the potential for burnout, but at the same time, I think my life without this work would be significantly lacking. So I enjoy what I do, and I know my colleagues feel the same way. That's so important. Yes. Tell us a little bit about, you know, we talked a little bit about making sure that when people pass away, they pass away as they would wish, Mm -hmm. um, that their wishes are are fulfilled and that, you know, that they find closure and that, um, that they really, you know, kind of put the finishing touches on the things that they wanted to do. Tell us about preparing for end of life, because it's certainly not something that we all like to think about or talk about. Um, And certainly, you know, you had mentioned that uh, one of the services that that you have, I mean, in the myriad of services, Mm -hmm. uh, was, you know, a partnership with Yale Law to help with uh, legal documents. But what kinds of things should people really be thinking about? Before we ever hit kind of looking at end of life, because we all know that it's coming. At some point, it's coming. <laughs> and we we may not want to think about it. We may think that it is, you know, decades and decades and decades away. Mm-hmm. And so we don't think about it. But what things should we be thinking about and talking about with our families? I think there are two perspectives to take when you think about preparing for end of life. So there is the caregiver perspective and sort of the practical medical legal power of attorney perspective, which I have been, and that's a hard job. So there's that perspective, sort of the more practical sense. And then there's really the patient-focused perspective, which I think is highly individualized. So in terms of the patient perspective, Each and every patient is different, and what I try to do is just normalize whatever is important to them at that time. So when patients face kind of their mortality or nearing end of life, every every patient has a unique story. Some people are really fixated on (laughs) – I had one patient who he managed all of the practical things for his home. Everything, you know, outside of the home was his job. Everything inside the home was a wife's job. And he said, I need to teach her how to use the (laughs) snowplow. And this was a really key thing for him. And I thought it was so touching that this this was how this man lived his life. These were the people that he cared about. And this was his job. And, you know, it's winter's coming, you know. (laughs) So for him, it may have seemed silly to some other people in his life, but for him, this was really important to make sure he already had all the financial things and all the other things. But my wife needs to learn how to use a snowplow. <laughs> um, for other people, it's, you know, it's physical legacy, right? So I want so-and-so to have my wedding ring. I want so-and-so to have my boat. Other people, it's, you know, personal, physical items that they need to worry about. Other people, it's it's, they may have already thought about these things. I've paid for my children's colleges, everybody's set. Um, But I haven't really thought about myself and and what I want to leave behind or what I need to process. So every individual is different. Um, There was a gentleman I took care of uh, many years ago in a very far away place, but he was passing away at a pretty young age and it had a really uh, diverse, exciting life and traveled extensively, studied extensively, and he helped plan itineraries on for trips that he wanted his family to take that were meaningful for him. So this is where I studied abroad. This is where I had my first internship. You know, this is the coffee shop that I used to study at back in wherever. And so that was important to him. And, and 
we helped him facilitate, you know, writing all of these things down and documenting them when he could. So everybody is different. And I think I try to educate caregivers and family members to respect whatever it is that is important to their loved ones. So even if you're kind of rolling your eyes, like, I don't care about all of your passwords. <laughs> I don't need to know like the last four of every bank account. But for some people, that's just what they need to process. I I likened it to um, when you have that nesting instinct when you're very, very pregnant, you know, you just you need to clean out whatever it is you need to clean out. And there's just no rationalizing past it, right? Like, you need to clean out that bottom door in your garage. Otherwise, you're going to go crazy. (laughs) Right. So whatever it is that people feel the need to do, respect that, support them, be there for them and, and normalize that itch, whatever that itch is for people. I think as a caregiver, I was medical and legal power of attorney for my mother, and um, it was sort of a crash course in all of this. And, you know, write down all those passwords, keep a, keep a running log of all that important information, because it is a boatload um, for people to take care of, um, both if patients are diagnosed with serious illness or unable to participate in medical and financial decisions. Um, But yeah, I I view it from a caregiver perspective and a patient perspective. But there's no right or wrong way, and there's no one way to do it, certainly. Dr. Elizabeth Horn-Persich is the director of the Adult Palliative Care Program and an assistant professor at the Yale School of Medicine. If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu, and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. We hope you'll join us next week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on Connecticut Public Radio.